Uh, If you would open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11, uh, we are going to finish up chapter 11 this morning by looking uh, at the Lord's Supper um, in verses 27 to 34, kind of finish up our our look at the Lord's Supper. Uh, If you are using a black Bible provided for you, we'll be on page 959 towards the back of your Bibles. Um, You can also kind of put your finger in Hebrews chapter 12, Uh, that's on page 1008. We are going to flip over to Hebrews 12 this morning. But over the past two weeks, we've taken a fairly extensive and necessary look at the Lord's Supper. Two weeks ago, we looked at the first core truth regarding the Lord's Supper, that the Lord's Supper is an expression of unity. You remember uh, Paul says, when you, got, when you come together, Church of Corinth, it's not for the better that you're coming. It's actually for the worse. And in the context of the Lord's Supper, he says, uh, I don't know what you're doing, but it's not the Lord's Supper that you're partaking of. This is something of a fleshly nature that you're using to consume your own desires and lusts. Well, the second core truth of the Lord's Supper, that it's not just an expression of unity, or at least it should be, but the Lord's Supper is is a picture of the gospel, verses 23 to 26, we looked at last week. How is it an expression, a picture of the gospel? Well, we looked last week at the context of the Lord's Supper, that the very context in which Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper He commands his disciples, he commands the church to observe the Lord's Supper. It's in the context of his very crucifixion, his atonement for sin that he will be accomplishing. Not only does the context of the Lord's Supper uh, point our eyes to the gospel, what Jesus has done for sinners like you and me, But the elements of the Lord's Supper are a picture of the gospel. We talked last week about the the bread, about the cup, and what that symbolizes for us of, of Christ's broken body. And you remember the cup that Jesus drank the full dregs of the wrath of God. And by doing that, that cup takes on new significance, that it is uh, the new covenant that he has purchased with his blood. He has made us his own under a new and a better covenant because of what Jesus has done. And then we close last week by looking at the, uh, the Lord's Supper as a picture of the gospel because of the anticipation that we have, that we are reminded of when we partake of the Lord's Supper. Verse 26, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So the Lord's Supper, it is a looking back at what Jesus has accomplished for those who have put their faith in him. It is a look at the present that 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 work of redemption is still at work in our hearts today. And it is a look into the future that Jesus Christ is returning He will complete that work of salvation that he started in us. That is the work of the gospel. It is both a past work 
a present working, and a future hope and fulfillment. In fact, Jesus says himself that he will one day drink of the fruit of the vine again with us when he returns. So the Lord's Supper, when we observe it, it is meant to bring us back to what is unconditionally true for us as Christians and what is utmost foundational in our lives, what is utmost foundational in the church, and that is the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf that He has reconciled us vertically to God And he has reconciled us horizontally to each other. This is unconditionally true and it is utmost foundational for our Christian lives and our church. So when we come to this principle that we must cling to what truly matters, the Lord's Supper is meant to be not simply a memorial but a present-day means of God's grace to continue and spur us on in the Christian life. Well, today we are going to look at the final core truth regarding what the Lord's Supper presents to us. And this final truth is found in verses 27 to 32. That the Lord's Supper is a time of self-examination. And then uh, we're going to conclude in verses 33 to 34 with some closing application. But we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning looking at the Lord's Supper as a time of self-examination. And I believe as we look at this final truth that, that 1 Corinthians 11 presents to us, I think that it's going to round out what we've been saying if you've been tracking with us for the past two weeks. And I think it's going to maybe answer some questions and even some misconceptions regarding this idea of self-examination that can maybe bounce back and forth in our heads. So we're going to ask the Lord to lead us as we come before Him in His Word So join with me in prayer. God, I pray that you would minister to our hearts this morning. Father, we are looking at the greatest of acts that we could ever know. Father, your perfect sacrifice, your death, burial, and resurrection on behalf of completely unworthy sinners. Lord, without Jesus, we would be hopeless. Father, we often take for granted the greatest of blessings in our lives. And Lord, this is often one of those areas. We lose sight of the reality and the good news of the gospel that is in our lives. So, Father, I pray that this morning that the Holy Spirit would warm our hearts 
to the reality that if we have turned, we have repented from our sins, and we have looked to Jesus as the author and the finisher of our faith. We look to Him to be our Lord and Savior. That, Lord, we are secure. We are hope-bound. And Father, the Lord's Supper is one of those means of grace that you have given us to anchor us, to remind us consistently of what you have done for us, of what you are doing in us, and what we are to be living for, the reality of your return and the completion of your work of salvation in us. Lord, would you lead us as we look at your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. Core truth number three that 1 Corinthians 11 shows us regarding the Lord's Supper is that the Lord's Supper is a time of self-examination. Read with me, follow along if, as I read verse 27. It says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So what verse 27 tells us, first of all, regarding the Lord's Supper being a time of self-examination, is that we must not eat and drink in an unworthy manner. Now again, we have to bounce back to what Paul has been saying ever since verse 17 regarding the Lord's Supper. What has been going on? Paul says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup. So he, he's taking us back to what he has already said. And if you look at verse 20, he says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. In eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So Paul, in verse 17 to 22, he takes the Lord's Supper and he says, this is what's going on. You are actually despising what Jesus has done. And then in verses 23 and 20 to 26 that we looked at last week, He's saying, here's the reality of why we come together for the Lord's Supper. And now, this morning, as we look at verse, verse 27, he's going back to that first section saying, okay, now you see how you are treating the Lord's Supper. You see the significance of the Lord's Supper. Now, in light of that significance, let's go back to what's going on in, your, in the church. There are individuals who are eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. So you may ask the question, what does it mean to eat and drink in an unworthy manner? I think first of all, by answering, to answer that question, we have to answer what does eating unworthily or drinking unworthily not mean? Because I think there may be, in looking at this passage, there can maybe be some 
misconceptions that we all can have in our minds regarding what this means. I think, first of all, what eating unworthily, drinking unworthily does not mean, it it does not mean that any of us in and of ourselves are worthy to take part of the Lord's Supper. That somehow we've achieved in our own, by means of ourselves, some status of worthy. If you flip back just a few pages to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and you look at verse 9, Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then verse 11 says, And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, there is no boasting that we can make in the flesh that we have somehow deemed ourselves worthy of God's favor. Paul doesn't simply say, now you were once that, but you have done a better job now. I also want to take you on the flip end of this, and then I want to expound on it. Eating unworthily, drinking unworthily, also is not an invitation to an unhealthy fixation on self. Another way of terming this is, it's not a time of morbid introspection. You see, we cannot suddenly make ourselves worthy. I think we all, personality-wise, thinking-wise, spiritually-wise, fall on a spectrum. That it's not an either-or thing, but I think there's a spectrum. Like most things in life, you put it on a spectrum. And I think any one of us will lean more to one side of the spectrum or the other side of the spectrum. Uh, the, uh, uh, for instance, for me, you know, we, we can lean towards the very introspective side of the equation, or we can lean on the, I don't know what the other term would be, the um, overly positive side of the spectrum. So this is what this looks like. In my life, I would lean more towards the introspective side. In fact, I can remember, and maybe some of you can identify with me with this. Others maybe would say, whoa, that is not me. I don't identify with that at all. The Bible's written to all personalities, and we take the truth of Scripture, and we don't use our personalities as a gauge for truth or our wirings. We use Scripture. But... I remember growing up, even as a child, as I, as I mentioned as we started this, I was saved as a boy. Um, 
I, I was baptized when I was a little bit older, and then after baptism, um, I, I, was, I partook of the Lord's Supper at the local church I grew up in. And I remember always being fearful before the Lord's Supper. That, well, what if I'm harboring something? What if I'm not worthy to partake of the Lord's Supper? In fact, I remember one time, and probably this was multiple times, but I only remember one occasion, uh, my poor mother would have to endure long talks with me. Um, And I remember sitting in the parking lot um, before a, a service, before a Sunday night service where we had communion, and I remember telling my mom, Uh, Not even a specific thing, but just a vague feeling that, you know what, I just, I feel guilty if I partake of the Lord's Supper. What do I do? And I remember her talking to me through that. Maybe some of you can identify with that. As God God has put us together uh, as couples, I didn't mention I was going to use Rachel in this same analogy. Um, God puts opposites together many times, right? Praise the Lord for that. I, I shared that with Rachel before, and she says, really, that's funny, because I was the exact opposite. I looked at my life, and, I, and boy, I, I did this, I did that, I did that, I did that. So yeah, I'm a good Christian, so there's not really, uh, there's not really a need to kind of look within. Those are two totally opposite perspectives, right? But those are two perspectives that we can fall into that, that really aren't biblical, So there is a lot of baggage that we can even carry psychologically or or personality-wise when we read a phrase like eating unworthily. When we look at this through the lens of Scripture, we see that none of us in and of ourselves can anywhere be worthy. So we're going to dive deeper into what exactly Paul is saying here. So for instance, if we are, 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 in, are having a time of introspection in our hearts, and if we are gauging, well, I am, I am worthy to partake of the Lord's Supper because these four things came to my mind and I'm doing well in those. Well, what about the certain things that you left out? You see, what happens is we start to make ourselves our own standard of righteousness. In fact, I was uh, just reading something the other day, and I forget who said it. The person was quoting whoever this was. But they said, you know, the truth of the gospel is to cheer up because you're a lot worse than you think you are. That goes against uh, pop psychology today, doesn't it? But what the truth of that is, is you cannot find a sense of satisfaction by somehow looking within and saying, I'm okay. The gospel says, cheer up, you're a lot worse than you think you are, in the sense that we are deeper ingrained in sin than we even realize, and yet the Bible says in 1 John, herein is love, not that we loved Him, but that He loved us. 
and gave himself as a satisfaction for our sin. The hope of the gospel is we don't even know the depths of our sin, and yet Jesus died for us and initiated a relationship with us anyway. So eating or drinking unworthily is not something that we become the standard of if we are worthy or not worthy. So what does eating unworthily mean? As we begin to answer that question, I want us to look towards the end of verse 27. Paul says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty. Guilty for what? Concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So while we're more fully going to unpack what eating unworthily means in verses 28 to 30, what we see in verse 27 is that eating and drinking in an unworthy way is eating and drinking in a way that dishonors and devalues the very meaning of the Lord's Supper that we are celebrating. And that's exactly what Paul explains is going on in verses 17 to 22, right? That it's not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. The Lord's Supper uh, is, is, uh, reminds us of Christ who selflessly gave himself for us, even in the midst of betrayal. And even in the midst of our sin. This eating and drinking in a way that dishonors and devalues the very meaning of the supper we're celebrating, it can both be an outward manifested in outward actions, and it can also be a matter of the heart. So if we are going to come to the Lord's Supper and see it as a time of self-examination in a proper sense, we have to see that we must not eat and drink in an unworthy manner. That it is possible to do that. Whether you completely think you're okay without giving it a whole lot of thought or whether you are fearful. It doesn't negate the truth that this is a reality But as we dig deeper into this in verses 28 to 30, not only are we to see that we are to eat and drink in an unworthy manner, but look at verse 28. Let a person examine himself then. So there we have the idea of examination, self-examination. Then Let him examine himself then, and so eat of of the bread and drink of the cup. So what we're going to see in verses 28 to 30 is we must have a healthy reverence for Christ's body. And verse 28 shows us that this involves self-examination. Now, verse 28, notice it says, let a person examine himself. It doesn't say to examine others. It doesn't say, husbands, examine your wives, or wives, examine your husband's spiritual heart. 
and actions. Or examine your children's. Or examine the person in the church that maybe has rubbed you the wrong way recently. But then look at verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So we see that there's a command for self-examination and then there's a warning of eating and drinking judgment. Herein, I think, is the answer according to the text of what eating in an unworthy manner is. Whoever eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So there is judgment, the text says, for not discerning the body. Now this very phrase right here, it tells us that the Lord's Supper is not just something that is casually observed. This is an important element in the life of the church. What is the text talking about eating and drinking without discerning the body? Well, in verse 27, which we've just looked at, he says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body. That's the last occurrence of body that we just saw before verse 29. The body and the blood of the Lord. Now, when it says the body and the blood of the Lord, what it's talking about is the sacrifice of Christ. That, that again, like I mentioned earlier, dishonoring and devaluing the very sacrifice of Christ for his people. But then in verse 29, he, he simply mentions without discerning the body. And I, and I think Paul does this purposefully. Because I think that there are two senses here that Paul gives us concerning not discerning the body. First of all, we fail to discern, as verse 27 tells us, we fail to discern the sacrifice of Christ. But Paul is getting much more specific than simply the sacrifice of Christ. He's getting into how the sacrifice of Christ is being devalued. You see, the body can have many senses. The last time that this word body is used outside of 1 Corinthians 11 is if you go back to a passage we've already looked at in chapter 10. If you turn over just the page to chapter 10, in chapter 10 in verse 16, Paul, again, talking of communion, just in the context of this warning against idolatry, he says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So there we see the bread represents Christ's body, but it also represents something more than that. Verse 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake 
of the one bread. So now as we jump back to our text in verse 29, whoever eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. What do you think that is referring to in addition to without discerning Christ's sacrifice? It's not discerning the body as a church that is to be unified. So Paul is saying here to the believers in Corinth, you all are coming to the Lord's Supper and not only are you devaluing and you're making a mockery of Christ's sacrifice, you are neglecting the very thing that Christ's sacrifice has achieved, unity in the body, that one body. Now you may say, well, Pastor Adam... Can you put this a little bit more where the rubber meets the road? I think that where we go with this is that while we do examine ourselves and we examine our hearts and we say, Lord, are there pockets of rebellion that I am willingly holding against you. What we see here is not as much kind of a theoretical self-examination as much as this is happening in the local church. And there are individuals who are doing things to disrupt the unity of the local church, and in this sense, individuals are coming unworthy of the cup of the Lord. You see, there is an anchor here to our discernment. There is an anchor here to our self-inspection. It is not just to the whims of our imagination. No, in this context, Paul is saying there is something very conscious that we must be aware of in our lives. Many times we can say, you know what? I'm good, Lord. And yet, man, we're wreaking havoc in our paths because we are using ourselves as a standard of what is right or what is wrong, what it means to live for God, what it means to not live for God. And on the flip end, on the, on the opposite side of that spectrum, we can often leave ourselves to the whims of, well, you know what? I just don't feel worthy enough. There must be something going on. No, this is not a, a blank ticket to just probe the depths of your heart no matter how obsessively you may do that and go by your feelings. No, every one of us should approach the Lord's Supper in a great sense of spiritual unworthiness. The unworthiness that I am not worthy of what Jesus has done for me. And I can think of so many things this past week where I've failed the Lord. But my heart is desirous in all of my weaknesses to follow after Christ. 
And man, by eating this bread and drinking this cup, I am testifying before the Lord, before my brothers and sisters in Christ, that it is Jesus' sacrifice for me to which I cling. And this is such a reminder of not only my great need for him because I do not measure up and never will, but the necessity that I continue to cling to him. That, folks, is a gospel-centered approach to the Lord's Supper. Now, the flip side can be very true. That there may be areas in your life where there are strict, there, there are strict divisions and there are things that are not right. And even in that, We are invited to come to the Lord's Supper in a spirit of repentance. But what we see here is that these believers were proud and they were fastened to the way that they were going to do things. And what was going on as a result of this in verse 29? Or verse 30, excuse me. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. You see, there are individuals, it says, it's interesting, it says many of you are weak and ill, and then it says some have died. So it's not the majority to which this has happened, but it is some. You may say, well, Pastor Adam, is this happening to uh, believers or unbelievers? That word died, and maybe your translation says this, it, it it can more precisely be translated, some have fallen asleep. Anytime in the Bible that the Bible talks about falling asleep, it's talking about believers in death. This is very similar to what we see in chapter 10, In verse 8, when it says, We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Uh, We see here, though in a different context, where we see those who said they were of Israel that really truly weren't, we see that something similar... Yet, as we will see in verse 31, something similar but different was happening to believers in this very church. They were falling sick. A few were dying. You see, as we come to a time of self-examination, looking at the Lord's Supper as a time of self-examination, verse 27 shows us we must not eat and drink in an unworthy manner. Verses 28 to 30 show that we must have a healthy reverence for Christ's body. That Christ holds in high regard the unity of His church. And man, we can easily slip into creating disunity. But then verses 31 to 32, we see that we must also realize the graciousness of God's discipline. We may say, wow, verse 30 is harsh, and so it is. 
But notice verse 31. We see in verse 31 a gracious warning. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. It's interesting that that word judged in verse 31 is the same word discerned that's in verse 29. Without discerning the body. What Paul's saying here is if we discerned ourselves the proper way, we would see that we are not discerning the body which Christ has purchased. And there's all this disunity that's being created in this Corinthian church. And Paul says, take a moment to properly discern yourself and how you're relating to the church body. To avoid this type of judgment. If we discerned or judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. You see, Paul is encouraging these believers to not continue in their ways. But then notice verse 32. But when we are judged by the Lord, going back to what's going on in verse 30, how are we to view it? We are disciplined. So that we may not be condemned along with the world. Wow. Even in the harsh discipline that we see in verse 30 of individuals becoming sick and some even dying, this is an act of grace in the lives of of God's people to keep them from being condemned along with the world. A temporal discipline versus an eternal condemnation. Many times, if you're a parent, you've come across situations where your children will say, you are being harsh. And of course, as imperfect parents, um, maybe sometimes that discipline looking back is like, yeah, maybe I didn't handle that correctly. It's not that way with God. But when we discipline, it is for the love of our children. It is actually the most unloving thing that we could ever do as parents to not discipline our kids. To let them just go and act any which way they would like. It may not seem that way to our kids at the time. But yet we, with a greater understanding than our children have, know what is for their ultimate good. And so it is with God. I, I, I asked you to maybe put a marker in Hebrews chapter 12. Many of you are familiar with this passage. In Hebrews chapter 12, in verse 5, the author there says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My sons, or you could even insert there, my daughters, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the ones He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. 
God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and lived? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciples, disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That's exactly what Paul is saying here as well. This discipline, this illness that is coming upon many in the congregation, it is to be a training exercise to bring them back to the reality of what Christ has done for them and how that in turn changes our lives and what we are seeking. Maybe this morning you, maybe not in the context of the Lord's Supper per se, but you are facing the discipline of the Lord. Man, even going through trials, uh, that, that's God's discipline to make us and transform us into what we are not. You see, God's gracious discipline, there's really three factors to God's discipline. First of all, God's discipline refines. We just read about this in Hebrews 12. You see, God reaches us, He comes down to us, and He reaches us where we are, but He never keeps us there. We to ourselves would be like, hey, I don't mind where I'm at, God, but God loves us too much to leave us where we are at. God loved this church too much to let them continue in these actions. God honored the death of His Son too much to allow these actions to continue. God's discipline refines, but God's discipline also protects. You see, the graciousness here is not that the discipline was enjoyable, but this discipline was being given so that these believers would not be left to themselves and become condemned along with the world. This is an an eternal condemnation. But God's discipline also humbles. You see, these believers, remember two weeks ago if you were here, these, these believers were trying to gain status even at these fellowship meals and at the Lord's Supper. That man, if you're of a certain social status, you know, you're going to be able to be in the in crowd and you get first dibs on everything. And those that are of a lower status in the church, socially speaking, they're left without. And the Lord's Supper uh, emphasizes above, above all things that there is equal footing at the cross. These believers needed to be humbled that they were seeking all the wrong things. And the Lord's Supper is meant to be a reminder in our hearts that you know what? We have been seeking many times all the wrong things at work, 
in our homes, in our personal lives. We've been seeking me, me, me. And the Christian life is not about me. It is about what Christ has done, yes, for me. And then the call outward that the gospel gives. So as we close this morning, I want to look at these last two verses with closing application. I just want to read verse 33 and 34 together as Paul kind of ties this together. He says, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And then he adds, About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Two points of closing application. I hope that we have seen from verses 17 to 34 that as believers, God has called us to walk in unity. Not simply as believers, but as brothers and sisters in a local church community. We are to walk in unity. The context of our passage shows us that to create disunity in the local church, Christ holds very seriously. And of course, we are not talking about a vague unity like our world talks about. We are talking about a unity that is grounded in Christ, in truth. When Paul exhorts the church to walk in unity here, this is a corrective unity. He's saying you haven't been walking in unity, but you must. It's interesting to me that this is now the fourth time that Paul in verse 33 uses this phrase, when you come together. The first three occurrences in this passage are verse 17, verse 18, verse 20, all in the negative sense. You're coming together for your own good. It's not for the good of the church. You're coming together to serve yourselves. He's saying, when you come together, you cannot continue the way you were. It must be in unity. You see, they needed to know what it truly meant to come together. That it is not about themselves, it is about Christ. And man, sometimes those individuals that you struggle most to dwell in unity with are the ones that you need to put behind the cross of Christ. Not only is this a corrective unity, but this is to be a unity that's expressed outwardly. What kind of, what, what kind of change and repentance and unity would this look like? Verse 34, when you come together, if anyone is hungry... Let him eat at home, so that when you come together, there's the phrase again, it will not be for judgment. In verse 33, when you come together, wait for one another, or share with one another. You see, what this is talking about here, 
is a walk that's both in truth and love. Where these believers begin to realize why they are coming together. They're not coming before the Lord's Supper and the first century context where there's a meal involved as well. They're not coming together to simply fill themselves. Man, Paul says if that's your, your perspective, eat at home so that that's not a temptation. You see, this is a call for us to walk in truth and love because we don't just snap our fingers and change. This is something that we come to the Lord with that is a work of the heart that is then expressed outwardly. This is a call to walk in truth, to walk in love, to come prepared. When we come to church in the morning, when we observe the Lord's Supper, you know why one of the, the, the greatest difficulties in our lives of sometimes feeling like, wow, that was, that was a bland service, or wow, I didn't really get anything out of that, or, or you know, I'm just missing the mark. It's not necessarily because of what's going on in the morning service. It's because of what's going on Monday through Saturday. If we are not actively pursuing Christ, then things are going to bubble up to the surface when the church is gathered together, just like what was happening in the church in Corinth. As we close, the Lord's Supper is given to us as a means of grace. Not grace to somehow cleanse our sins, that has already happened, but grace and strength to continue in the Christian life. And if we come to the Lord's Supper with the wrong perspectives, an unhealthy perspective of self, of either, whoa, it's all about me, whether I'm exalting myself or demoting myself, if any of those things are happening without Christ at the center, that we view ourselves and we view others through the cross of Christ. If anything else is happening, we are coming to the Lord's Supper from the wrong perspective. We must indeed cling to what truly matters.